you will, open your Bibles to the book of Leviticus, uh, that third book in your Old Testament, uh, Leviticus chapter 11, and we're going to read verses 43 through 45 in just a moment. Again, the book of Leviticus chapter 11, beginning in verse 43. This is the third sermon in a new sermon series that we call Route 66, and so it is a 66-part sermon series. And so we are uh, just getting started. We're going to do uh, one sermon uh, per uh, book of the Bible. And so uh, I am so appreciative of Pastor Brad uh, for preaching last week. He did a, a wonderful job. And as I interact uh, with uh, Drew and Brad and, and many of you young men, uh, I'm amazed at uh, how well you handle the Word of God, how well, well you communicate the Word of God, and uh, it, it's certainly a joy uh, to be a part of what God is doing uh, in our church uh, through you and, and with you, and look forward to serving with you uh, for many, many uh, more days. I suspect that if I were to ask you, make me a list and you begin with your least favorite book of the Bible, that at least for most of you, among the top two or three, uh, there would be this book of Leviticus. Uh, it's certainly, uh, to our modern experience and sensibilities, uh, is a tedious book uh, describing uh, rituals that seem uh, obscure, uh, to us, and, and maybe at some level even uh, ruthless uh, and needless. Uh, but yet, I think if you would take the time, and I pray that as you come uh, to Leviticus in your read through the Bible in a year plan, uh, that you will pay close attention and that you will begin to, to see what I believe may be the clearest portrait of the person and work of our Lord Jesus Christ to be found in the entirety of the Old Testament. That, that every activity and every ritual looks forward to its ultimate completion, perfection, and effectiveness in the person and the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, while tedious... Uh, to go through all the methodologies and all the, the procedures and protocols that, that uh, was to be followed by the old covenant people of God, I think it will pay dividends. As you recognize how each ritual highlights the awfulness of our sin, the greatness of the holiness of God, and the, the miracle of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ that indeed gains for us that which God's law demands of us, namely holiness. As God says to us, as he said to them, that he is indeed a holy God, and we as his people are to be a holy people. So read with me, if you will. Beginning in verse 43. 
You shall not make yourselves detestable with any swarming thing that swarms. You shall not defile yourselves with them and become unclean through them. For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourselves with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground, for I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall, therefore, be holy, for I am holy. Pray with me. Father, once again, we thank you for this great privilege to gather as your people. And Lord, may we recognize that because of, through the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, we have indeed been made holy. And in that we rejoice, and in that we give thanks. We thank you that it is a complete and perfect work. And then also let us be mindful that we are also in a process of having the experience of being remade, of growing in the grace of God to become in our lives, in our practice, a holy people, holy, set apart to serve you by your grace and for your own glory. Lord, we pray this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Essentially, Leviticus resolves the problem presented to us in the book of Genesis chapter 3. That is that those that bear the image of God, namely Adam and Eve, as our representatives in that garden we remember as Eden, had violated the will of God. They had transgressed God's covenant, God's law. And they became guilty. They became sinners. They, became, they were estranged from God. I suppose God could have chosen to destroy Adam and Eve and ended, if you'll excuse the expression, ended the experiment at that point. Just said, this is not worth the effort. It's not worth the hassle. But God chose not to destroy them immediately. God could have chosen to ignore their sin and rebellion. And yet, given the character of God... That was impossible. That sin and rebellion could not be ignored by a holy God. And God chose by His grace, for His own glory, through His own power, through His own will and accomplishment, that He would reconcile these rebels and their descendants through the work of His Son, Jesus Christ. And so from Genesis chapter 3 all the way to the end of the book of Revelation, what we see is a revelation and a presentation of that which God has done to reconcile sinful men to Himself. 
And so as we look at the book of Leviticus and as we attempt to, to survey and, and unpack and help you have uh, some applications of, of the meaning of, of what uh, is here, essentially there are two issues. How to be, how sinful humanity may be reconciled to a holy God and how sinful man may live together in what amounts to a sinful society. That is, there, there are two dimensions. How do we be right with God and how do we live together without destroying each other? And so God law, God's law has at least two dimensions, a vertical dimension and a horizontal dimension. And you really cannot separate those dimensions, as you've heard me say many, many times before. Do not jump up and be all pious and say, I am so well acquainted with God and my relationship with God is so perfect, when in fact there are those that you're commanded to love that you won't even speak to. It is impossible to be estranged from men and be right with God. And so God's law is a revelation and is a testimony to both of those issues. We can, and again, by way of survey, I think it is helpful. It, it is not, uh, it's not a perfect way of organizing God's law, but we can speak of the law as that which is the moral law, again, how to love God and how to love your neighbor. Uh, the law protects uh, me and protects my neighbor as it is revealed and uh, prescribed. Uh, that is, the law uh, promotes certain things and prohibits and punish, punishes other things. Uh, and so there is the moral aspect of the law. There's the civil aspect that had to do with regulating what God uniquely designed as a theocracy for a particular people at a particular place at a particular time. Now, again, that doesn't mean it's irrelevant to how we live now. It just means that specifically it had pertinence and usefulness to that very unique people. And then, of course, sometimes we speak of that which is ceremonial. Uh, that which God prescribed as a reminder of their guilt, of their sin, and uh, pointing to His holiness and how it is that sinful men may come into the presence of a holy God without they themselves being destroyed by the outbreak of the holy wrath of God. And so, in, in essence, we might say the book of Leviticus uh, prescribes for ancient Israel and instructs us as to how it is or what it means for us to be a separate, a distinct, a holy people set apart for service to God. So, in way, by way of introduction, we know that Moses is the author of this book. And if you think about it, the five books that Moses wrote, and we spoke of them earlier, the books of the law, the Torah, uh, the Pentateuch, the, these are terms that refer to those first five books of your Old Testament, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that there's a sense where the four other books, 
the two that precede Leviticus and the two that follow Leviticus, both all point to the high point of the book of Leviticus. That Leviticus forms the central point, the central focus of the five books of Moses. That structurally, Leviticus is the center of this testimony of the law given uh, through Moses and written by him most likely during the year that the Exodus generation, the Israelites, uh, the newly formed covenant people of God, uh, they, that they resided uh, there at Sinai. I found this interesting. You know, I, I kind of like little, uh, I don't know, cute quotes or whatever you want to say. But it said, he, he said it took one night to get the Hebrews out of Egypt. And it took 40 years to get Egypt out of the Hebrews. And I thought that, you know, that's, that's incredibly insightful. Because again, what was the purpose of those wilderness wanderings after God had revealed himself and God had delivered these people and God had saved these people was to remove the wickedness from among them. And so I thought that, that, that's a good way of looking, that, that, that this is a book about how God's people, people called by God, should live before him and with one another. What it means to be a, a separate, a distinct people of God, as God said in Exodus 19, 5. Now, therefore, you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. You shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. Now, notice this, for all the earth is mine. Now, God uniquely chose these people, these descendants of Abraham. If you remember from our Christmas sermon series, we spent all that time in the genealogies emphasizing this covenant made with Abraham. And so this old covenant uh, flows out of and is a unique subset to the covenant that God made with Abraham. This is the way that I'm fulfilling this promise to make Abraham a great nation. And through Abraham, there's going to be a unique, a one-of-a-kind way in which I'm going to bless the nations. And that unique way is going to be the unique man, Jesus, the Son of God. All the earth is the Lord's. But these people are unique and special and chosen. And so you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And here's the thing. In the book of 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, the apostle Peter, speaking to those who are the citizens of the kingdom of God. Now, the, 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 the participants in the new covenant, he says that same thing to us, that we are this unique and chosen and special people of God, set apart by God for God. And so, in this book of Leviticus, what we shall See, as the central feature, as I said, Leviticus is the central feature of the uh, Pentateuch. The central feature, feature of Leviticus is this great ritual that is known as the Day of Atonement, which I think, again, in terms of Old Testament uh, revelation, Old Covenant revelation, is the picture that God gives of us 
of the ultimate and the final work of the Lord Jesus Christ. As the author of Hebrews explains to us, that under the old covenant, men were commanded to take sacrifices and to take blood into a tent or into the temple that, that was made by hands. And that served its purpose. It was, it was a lesson that was instructive to the people for that time. And it served to, to mitigate the wrath of God against their sin. But the good news of the gospel is that once and for all, that which the blood of bulls and goats could not accomplish was actually accomplished by the perfect high priest who entered the heavenly holy of holies not to offer blood that must be shed over and over again, the blood of bulls and goats, but he presented his very own blood by which he cleansed and he forgave his people their sins and they were and they are many. And so we see that that great event, that great accomplishment of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ pointed to all through this book of Leviticus. And so what we see are regulations for worship. You, you hear a discussion now, and it's something that I'm somewhat a, a part of, that what is acceptable or what is required of God's people in the, in the course of what we would call our gathering for worship. Are we free to do anything we'd like? Uh, is, should, should I preach or should I maybe do an interpretive dance for you today? Would God be just as pleased as I did, if I did a few pirouettes? Or would he rather have his holy, inspired, infallible, inerrant word proclaimed. See, just as those old covenant people were prescribed a protocol for this is how I am to be worshipped, God's new covenant people are prescribed as well. This is how I will be recognized, acknowledged, and worshipped as the Holy One who has redeemed you not literally out of Egypt, but redeemed you out of your enslavement to sin. So in the first six chapters, what we see is explanation related to the five different uh, excuse me, sacrifices that were to be offered by the people. There was the burnt offering and the grain offering, the peace offering and the sin offering and the trespass offering. And I understand. If, you, if you're reading that devotionally, it gets, it gets tedious. What, 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 what was that? What, what do you do? I get that. But if you can just remember, again, these point to the fact that in Jesus Christ, all that this pointed to was fulfilled. In chapter 6, or at the end of chapter 6, we see the regulations as to how the priests are to be recognized and to set apart, be set apart for this peculiar service to God, to serve uniquely as the stewards of that thing that was called the tabernacle, the tent in which God was to meet with his people. And then there's this narrative portion. There's not a lot of narrative in Leviticus. But in chapter 10, we have the story of two sons of Moses' brother Aaron. Their names, Nadab 
and Abihu. Very strange and a very sobering story. And the, the text itself is, is kind of terse. It's, it's, it's kind of brief in uh, describing that which they did that offended God so that his holy wrath broke out against them. My translation reads, they offered unauthorized fire. Some translations read strange fire. Those of you that follow the, the ministry of Dr. John MacArthur, and grace to you, know a few years ago, uh, he did a, a very, very large conference, and a book flowed out of it entitled Strange Fire which was kind of an analysis and an indictment of some of the abuses and excesses in the modern church, particularly in charismatic circles, that they were doing that which was not prescribed by God, as that which was, again, uh, commanded by Him in terms of worshiping Him. And so we find this account of these two brothers, and whatever they did, and, and I think commentators kind of go down a couple of roads, uh, they were either drunk, which is possible, okay? There's a reference to the, uh, that they're not to be under the influence of alcohol made uh, pretty close to that particular context. Or they attempted in an unauthorized way to enter the Holy of Holies. It may have been both. It may have been both. But that which they did did not meet the standard that God had commanded. And, and I, out of the many th ways that I might criticize the, the modern church, and uh, one of our young ladies uh, told me this morning that I got her in some trouble recently. Imagine, imagine me doing that. I, I can't imagine that. that. One of my criticisms was uh, kind of shared, and uh, she uh, was rebutted. But uh, one of my criticisms of the church in general, is we're ignorant. We're neglectful in terms of understanding the infinite and even the terrible holiness of God. We think God's just our good buddy up there, and we do what we want, and he just winks about it and giggles. And he ain't your grandpa sitting up there on the front, on the front porch of heaven just laughing as we act like idiots in this world. He is, indeed, the holy God. And so, much like we see in the case of Ananias and Sapphira at the beginning of the New Covenant era, uh, if you remember the story of a man by the name of Uzzah as uh, the uh, Ark of the Covenant is being transported back to Jerusalem in the days of King David, that God's holiness was violated, and God quickly, quickly, dealt the death blow to those who violated His holiness. And so certainly this was a sobering illustration of the holiness of God, that God is to be feared and there is a danger in sin, and that God was so serious about dealing with these two individuals in this way, He said, told their dad, told Aaron, don't mourn, don't, don't, don't grieve, move forward in a sense, because this is a demonstration of my holiness, and they got what sin deserves. So, 
We see the sacrifices. We see uh, the prescription for how priests are to be set aside for their service. And then we see uh, four chapters dealing with, again, how the people are for being to be prepared to be the people of God. And so there in the middle of the book, in chapter 16, we see this ritual known as the Day of Atonement. I'm going to say more about it in just one moment. But let me just say this, that essentially in this uh, once-a-year sacrifice, we see the two aspects of the work of atonement, of the work of the Lord Jesus on the cross at Calvary. We see what we sometimes call propitiation. You've heard me mention that term many, many times uh, over the years. And that is, again, the appeasing of the rightful, the just, and the holy wrath of God. It is right for God to be angry about sin because he is holy. That is the right thing for him, the right attitude and action for him to have. And then in the use of the scapegoat, and Jeff read about the scapegoat a few moments ago when he read from Leviticus 16, we see the other aspect of atonement, expiation, the lifting or the removal of our guilt. Okay? God's wrath is satisfied in Christ. That's why we celebrate. That I can look at you. That's why Angie can look at a woman who has had an abortion, who feels the weight of her sin, who feels guilty about it, and say to her who has confessed it to God and trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You have peace with God. Amen? And so our guilt, just as that goat is removed from the presence of the people of Israel, our guilt is lifted off of us in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the Day of Atonement pictured that for them, that which would be ultimately and finally accomplished in Jesus Christ. And so you have these 15 chapters that lead up to the Day of Atonement, and then you have chapters 17 through 27 that point back and look back on the implications and the applications of this central act of how uh, they are to live in terms of this old covenant law. And we see prescriptions and protocols related to the tabernacle, again to the people and the priest. We see the prescription for the seven festivals that Israel uh, was to observe. Again, a, a reminder of the graciousness of God in delivering them from their bondage in Egypt and separating them as the unique people of God. And so the book closes with a summary, essentially, of the blessings of obedience and the warnings regarding disobedience. That as my people, if you will follow my protocol, if you will live in obedience to my commandments, you shall be recognized as great among the nations of the world. You shall be blessed in ways that you cannot be imagined. But if you rebel against me, just as my holiness was demonstrated in the case of Nadab and Abihu, my holiness will bring upon you 
my wrath, and you will be cursed among the nations of the earth. And so let's look at our, our particular text very quickly here. In chapter 11, once again in verse 43, we see this command to be holy. There in verse 44, and it, it occurs in the midst of what we might think of as ceremonial law. This is how you shall be clean and acceptable uh, to worship me and all these dietary restrictions and all of these uh, different things. And, 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 and that's a good way of categorizing. But remember, to violate the ceremonial law was to make you morally guilty. Okay, so let's don't just say you know, that, that uh, uh, those things were just uh, uh, kind of obscure rituals. I think, in fact, if you look at the law, and, and, and to be sure, I think there were things in the law that were because I said so. Any of you parents ever had your children say to you, what's said so mean? There are certain things. You're just my child, and this is the way it's going to be. And I think there are certain aspects of the law that are, this is just the way it's going to be. But also, as you examine the law, think about it for just a minute. Somewhere between 1 and 8 million people walked out of Egypt. How do you keep these people from just killing each other, first of all? Okay? And how do you live together for what will be 40 years, and one year just camped in one place, without modern sanitation, without modern medicine? How do you keep disease and all kinds of other things from running through the camp? And killing everybody. And so if you look at that which God prescribed, there was great wisdom and great grace in it for the preservation of God's people. And so God says, first of all, I'm the Lord. You see that kind of phraseology when God reveals himself to Moses? Uh, when Isaiah speaks, I am the Lord and there is no other. I am uniquely God. I am the creator. I am the sustainer of all things. I am your redeemer. Exclusively, uniquely, one and only. And we could go on and on just with that statement. I am the Lord. And, and maybe, maybe I should subtitle it. And you're not. right? There is one God, He is the God, and we're not Him. And that, that is a helpful distinction to always have at the forefront of our thinking. So, I am the Lord, consecrate. Now, there we see the, the Hebrew word kadosh, be, be separate. It, it's translated in Greek as hagios. You hear me talk all the time about the Greek word hagios. It comes into English in different forms as holy, holiness, sanctification, sanctify. The concept is the same, to be a separate, distinct people. Separate yourselves and continue in this lifestyle of separation. Be a holy people. Again, for I am the Lord. I am your God, and I am the one who has redeemed you. You are a people because I am your God. And so this command to be holy is timeless. Again, the apostle Peter picks it up twice in his epistle. Once in 1 Peter and another time in 2 Peter, 
He asked this question, since all things are to be dissolved, what sort of people should you be in lives of holiness and godliness? Again, he identifies us in 1 Peter as a holy people. And so this cares for, you know, a lot of times we like, well, that's Old Testament, that doesn't apply, blah, blah, blah. But when an inspired writer of the New Testament brings it forward and applies it to the New Covenant people, guess what? It means we are, and that's very important, and we are to be a holy people. And you better get this right and get it in the right order. You better understand that we are. That because of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ, He has pronounced, He has determined, He has declared that we're holy by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Once and for all, complete, efficient, effective, and finished. You are a holy people. And then because we are a holy people, and we have to understand that. That, that means... There's no more, I'm just, I'm a nobody, I'm just waiting on the rapture. You know all that. God, by His grace, through the work of His Son, has made me holy. Now, that follows. I am to be experientially, I'm to be practically holy. Again, distinct. As the unbelieving, the ungodly people of the world. Now, it's real easy for us to pick some hot button issues. Again, I am pro life, and it's, it's easy to look out at the world and throw our stones at them. And we must stand for, for life. And abortion is murder. And I don't mind saying that, but we need to be careful. That in our pronouncements, that we don't think that we're righteous because of our own works, of what we have or have not done, okay? And so, God's command is that indeed we are and we shall be a holy people, distinct, separate. The world should be able to look at the church and see a difference, and see a difference in how we think and how we act. And so God installed these various rituals that we see all through the book of Leviticus and utilized all through the Old Testament. It is a reminder of the guilt of the people, of the offense, their guilt, their sin is to God, that there is a need for atonement so that there can be uh, reconciliation and that there must be a substitute. There must be a sacrifice. There must be one who will atoned, that, that the life of a thing is in its blood. In the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. Sin demands God's judgment. And that sacrifice is a picture of that judgment of God upon sin. And so, in our Lord Jesus Christ, the need for an animal sacrifice was, became obsolete because once and for all, by his one act of obedience on the cross of Calvary, the blood of the perfect Lamb of God fulfilled all that God demanded, all that God pictured in these symbols and types in the 
older covenant. And so on this day of atonement, the high priest would slaughter a bull and sprinkle its blood on the mercy seat for the atonement of his own sin. And one of the reasons that Jesus is our superior high priest is that when he entered the Holy of Holies to offer his own blood for the sacrifice of our sins, he wasn't worried about having his own sin atoned for because he had no sin. He had no sin. And so the high priest would offer that sacrifice for his own sin, then offer the blood of the goat as a sacrifice for the sins of the people. And he would sprinkle that blood on the cover of the mercy seat. That is the cover of the ark. And so that when God looked down into that ark and saw the holy uh, commandments of his law and saw that people had violated those commands, he could see that the blood of the atonement had covered the sin of the people. And it anticipated that it ultimately and fully and finally being covered by the blood of his son. Blood bulls and goats could only anticipate, couldn't effectively forgive. Blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, effective and efficient in accomplishing the forgiveness of our sin. And so two blood offerings, and then the priest would take what was known as the scapegoat. And he would take and place his hands on the head of that scapegoat, and he would confess the sins of the nation. And then there would be one that would be assigned to take that goat into the wilderness. That he was to be removed from the camp to never be seen again. As a testimony, as a reminder, that God, through the work of his son, would remove the guilt of his people as far as the east is from the west. What What a great picture of the atoning work of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that need for all those rituals. And you've heard me say this before. I think we take the gospel so lightly in our day. I think we take the holiness of God so lightly in our day that in some, in some, some way, sometimes, I, this is wrong, but I do think this sometimes, that it might be a great object lesson if when you came to church this morning, you had to go out into your pasture and grab your most perfect lamb, your most precious lamb, and you grabbed him by the ears, and you threw him in the back of the car, and you brought him to the church, and you brought him to the altar, and someone held him up by the ears, and you slit his throat, and he bled out. That's horrific. I know it. But it would remind remind us of the horror of our sin, the terror of a holy God, and the greatness. The greatness the, the infinite dimensions of the accomplishment of our Lord Jesus Christ for us on the cross of Calvary. The ritual ceased in Christ because Christ offered for all time a single sacrifice for sin. And he sat down. There were no chairs in the Holy of Holies. There were no chairs around the tabernacle because there was a constant need for blood to be shed. But when our perfect high priest shed his blood, he sat down because, as he said, it is finished. The work of atonement has been accomplished. And so, as we read through this book as difficult, obscure, 
even maybe in some sense offensive to us that we could do something like this to an animal. I, I get that. I understand that. But be reminded of the stench of our sin to a holy God and how he, by his grace, I mean, there would have been nothing wrong. God would be not, we could not be accused of doing anything wrong if he had said upon the offense of Adam and Eve that all of their descendants shall be banished, shall be judged, shall be condemned to hell forever without any hope of redemption and reconciliation. They were, now, some, some of you are looking, no, 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 God's too nice for that. You don't understand the holiness of God. You're worshiping an idol, if that's what you think. And so, God chose. He conceived of a plan, a plan that was put into motion over the course of thousands of years in which he would point forward through many types and dramas and illustrations, but it would point forward to a day when the perfect, unblemished Lamb of God would lay down his life for our sins, render all of the rituals obsolete. Now, again, we can still use them as object lessons. We can still use them as reminders. We can still understand what they meant. But there's no need to repeat them because the work was completed in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in saying that, we're going to come back to this, I think, in a couple of weeks in the book of Deuteronomy. We've had a lot of discussions over the years. And this is a work in progress in my own life as to how we utilize the law in the church and in society. And let me just say this, since we've had Angie speak today, we're looking forward to Sanctity of Life Sunday. I will tell you this, it is not just my personal opinion, and it is not just my personal conviction that abortion is sin, that it is wrong, that it is murder. It is the revealed testimony of the Word of God. And like I say, when a society wavers back and forth between consensus and public opinion and public sentiment and no longer roots that which they prohibit and that which they promote in accordance with the Word of God, that society is spinning out of control and is doomed to destruction. Now, we can debate and we can discuss and we can even disagree over some of these things. But that which is objective and eternal and transcendent and applicable to us in this moment, at this time, comes directly from the character and the revealed will of God. And that's why we can stand. And that's why we can say to the world, this needs to stop. Because it is a sin. And all sin is destructive to all people and an offense to God. And I'm thankful, I'm thankful that while my sins are great, I would be embarrassed to go through the catalog. I'm thankful that all that was portrayed in all of the rituals revealed throughout the Old Testament have been rendered obsolete and been made effective through the one sacrifice of the Son of God, the virgin 
born child of Mary, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, for your testimony to us of your grace, the reminder of your holiness, the reality of our own guilt, and the the great celebration that is ours that because all that these rituals pointed out and pointed to was accomplished through the once and for all work of our Lord Jesus Christ. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not the part, but the whole, has been nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. It is well with my soul. Amen.